Well, this is our second uh, and last, alas, uh, journey through the book of Luke. Um, uh, Luke, as I've mentioned before, for each one of the Gospels that we've covered so far, Luke's one of my favorite Gospels. Um, and uh, I just have one more that I'll be saying that about uh, next week uh, when we talk about the Gospel of John. Um, and John should be fun. I, you know, with my, with my students, my strategy is normally stir up trouble and then try to fix it. Um, and John makes it easy. So it's, uh, he, he gives you a head start in the stirring up trouble category. And so uh, next week I'll, I'll kind of point out some of the things that make John uh, such an odd and unusual and difficult gospel. Uh, but I actually think John's going somewhere. And once you figure out what John is doing, it's a, an incredibly meaningful gospel. And so uh, I hope you'll be here for those next two uh, sessions. If I just sort of trail off into uh, gibberish at a certain point, it is because I am right in the middle of my younger son's wedding weekend. And so last night we hosted, I don't know, what was the attendance of the last Super Bowl? Um, I think that's how many people were at the rehearsal dinner. That's what it felt like at least. I apologize if you didn't get invited because there were only like seven people in the you know Birmingham metro area that didn't get invited. But... Um, but we, uh, we had oh, just a, a wonderful night, uh, all packed in at the, I don't know if you're looking for a venue and you could make it work, but the, the sort of town hall and uh, the preserve over there, uh, gosh, it was just a, it was a beautiful setting. It was really nice. Um, and uh, a, a good time was had by all. Many tears were shed. Of course, you know, none of those were by me. Uh, you know, stoic reserve is my, uh, my watchword. Um, but, uh, and then he's got his wedding tonight, so we just couldn't be happier about the match, and they're headed off on their honeymoon, and then in his endless quest to get kicked out of the will is moving off to Philadelphia. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's it, and then there was one, <clears throat> is about the way I feel about it, so. Well, um, the, uh, the topic that we're going to talk about today, uh, as I uh, jokingly uh, said last week, was uh, we're going to have a prophecy conference. Um, and I, I know how near and dear eschatological themes are to y'all as Presbyterians. Um, and so this will be your chance. I do have diagrams. I'll tell you, at, you know, 11.30 a.m. is the time when the rapture will happen and this and so forth. And uh, I, I am always a little bit amused by that. And, and, you know, my people are the ones that are the more eschatological, so I can pick on them if I want. Uh, but... Uh, you know, the, uh, the, when we talk about things that, uh, you know, Jesus doesn't know, one of the things that comes up is, well, the hour of his return. And I've always found it a little bit odd that, you know, you'll have someone who can tell you that on September 13th at 9.03 a.m. is when Jesus is coming back. And I'm like, so, so you figured that one out, but Jesus doesn't know that. I that's real curious and quite impressive on your part that you've got it, but the Messiah does not. And, you know, we really get into it. I wonder if the Messiah knows what you're thinking, buddy, because if he does, then wouldn't he know by extension when you're coming back? And so maybe we'll just take a, a pause on the predictions about what time Jesus will come back. So people have been predicting it, um, you know, consistently for 2,000 years now. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Well, on your handout, I want to point out a couple of little uh, subtle changes that you can spot when you compare Luke's gospel to Mark. So in the same way that we could look at Matthew versus Mark and highlight uh, some of those distinctly Matthean beliefs, we can do the same thing with Luke. Notice that 
Mark 9, there's this verse, uh, Mark 9, verse 1. It says, he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, in other words, die, until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. So you see that line there, has come with power, speaking of the kingdom of God. Now Luke has the same paragraph, and look at what he says in Luke 9, verse 27. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, again the same line, before they see the kingdom of God. Do you notice that Luke omits that little line there, the has come with power line? So keeps the language, but drops the has come with power. All right, that's one. Look at the next one. You look at Mark 14 there. This is uh, uh, in the, the section where Jesus is being tried before the Sanhedrin. Uh, and uh, the, the question that's asked up, and coming with the clouds of heaven. Notice that Luke has the same thing. It's the same context there. If you're the Messiah, say so. Well, Jesus replies, and it says, from now on, passages here that are talking about the return of the Messiah, and yet in, in Mark, you get the language of has come with power or coming with the clouds of heaven. In Luke, it drops the coming language, and it drops the power language. In Luke, it's just seated, not seated and coming. Well, well, what in the world is going on here? Luke is going to be presenting the return of Jesus in a different way. I need to do a little bit of terminology with you here. Normally I would have my, my whiteboard and I could write all of these terms up here. But So one term that we could have is the term eschatology. That's a, that's a term you've probably heard before. The Greek word eschaton means the end. And so eschatology, you could think of it as either the study of the end times or sometimes it just becomes shorthand for the end by itself. So in other words, like the big end, the, the, the final crunch uh, there. So eschatology, the eschaton is the idea. Now, if you are of a mind that the eschaton is about to happen, then you are what they call apocalyptic. So the word apocalypse really just means revelation. Uh, and the idea is that it's not the revelation of Scripture, like the last book of the Bible, but it's the revelation of a person. In other words, when Jesus comes back. And so when he, his return is revealed there. So that's the apocalypse. And if you imagine that the apocalypse is about to happen, you are apocalyptic. We love, in our culture, post-apocalyptic movies. Some of the movies that you will know, uh, I've got a list of them here. Planet of the Apes is a, an apocalyptic movie. It's, re, it's technically a post-apocalyptic movie because what we love to do is there's something that you know, causes this cataclysm, and then what we like as the thought experiment is, so what do we do when we're picking up the pieces on the other side? And so here the apes have taken over the world, and now it's up to Charlton Heston to come in and, you know, you know, that, you know, that, well, we'll just kind of leave it at that. But he's going to come in and he's going to take over there. Um, Soylent Green. There are actually quite a few of these Charlton Heston ones, right? Um, and so this is the world is overpopulated. It's, it's people, you know, that you, some of you have seen these. Um, Omega Man, another Charlton Heston one from the 70s again there. This Omega Man was a book that was turned into the movie. Uh, Omega Man with Charlton Heston. Eventually it was redone. It, some of you may have seen the movie I Am Legend. Uh, that had Will Smith in it, and so actually, they, I'm a big Charlton Heston fan, but I thought Will Smith's version was quite good. Um, but all of these, something cataclysmic has happened, 
and now we're on the other side. You could think of Mad Max or Waterworld, The Matrix, Interstellar, Book of Eli, Contagion, World Contagion, we're like living in the midst of it, World War Z, The Walking Dead, and the 73 other versions of The Walking Dead uh, that are out there, War of the Worlds, Hunger Games, you know, The Giver, they just, we love these kinds of movies because it gives you a great thought experiment. Now, the truth is, the uh, my, when I was a youth pastor, one of the things my students could never relate to was the possibility of nuclear apocalypse. Because by then, it had passed. I mean, the wall had fallen, and so they didn't, you know, had no thought of this. And so the, a movie like The Day After, y'all remember that from the 70s and so forth, they, or the early 80s, they had no kind of connection to this. So I actually toyed with their little minds one time uh, by kind of giving them Tom Clancy's The Sum of All Fears. Uh, as, a, as a little story where, you know, some terrorist group gets to the nuke, sets it off, and we think that the Russians have done it, and, you know, everything kind of breaks apart there. This kind of apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic uh, uh, sort of notion is something that's strongly characteristic of Mark. Mark has the idea that the apocalypse is going to be soon, and so we would think of Mark as apocalyptic. Now, there's a reason why Mark thinks this. If you'll notice, and I've skipped a verse, but I'm going to come back to it. You notice where I say delay of the parousia and I've got bad, worse, good? Well, let me tell you what that's for. When I, you know, there's a thousand permutations of the end times amongst different Christian denominations. The biblical view of the end times is actually pretty simple. Bad. Okay, now see, that's the joke. That's not actually its view of the end times. That's the Bible's view of almost, in fact, I don't want to say almost, of every author. That's the biblical view of the present times. One of the convictions of the biblical authors is that the world is not the way the world ought to be. If you, we have two creation stories that start the Bible, we've got Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2 and 3. If you look at the first one, the creation story begins with water and darkness, which God controls but does not get rid of altogether. And so we live in this tension until we get to the last chapters of Revelation before God is finally going to get rid of the sea. Revelation 21, I, I saw a new heaven and a new earth and there was no more sea. This is a conviction that says the world is not the way the world ought to be right now. You look at Genesis 2, it's this paradisical garden that's followed by the fall. And then we live in the aftermath of the fall. The world is not the way that the world ought to be. And so that's, it's such a prominent biblical theme. It's why you have the lament psalms. It's why you have to do the work to, to repair the world. The world is not as the world should be. Biblical authors would look at this and say, the world is bad. Well, what we long for is that time when the world will be good. That's our, our third category there. So we long for that time when the world will be good, when the, you know, whatever you want to call it, where it's the millennium, where it's the second coming, where it's the new heavens, the new earth. We long for that time when the world will be good. But, and this is the linchpin of biblical eschatology. But before it gets good, it's going to get worse. That's the idea. And so whether you're starting in the Hebrew Scriptures or moving to the New Testament, there's this discussion of the day of the Lord. In other words, something worse is going to come. And then what comes on the other side of that is finally where there's the good that will come. Well, if you look at Mark's gospel, Mark believes that the good is just around the corner. 
And that's why he has this language in Jesus. Has come with power, coming with the clouds. He believes that the good is just around the corner. Well, what do you have to be going Events that are going on in the land of Israel in the late 60s. This is the time of the first Jewish revolt. And so here we are. We, uh, Israel has been living under Roman rule from the year 63 B.C. And it's, it's always been tense, but it's been tolerable at least. And Rome became fairly ham-handed in the way that they handled a few of the things. And this revolt began, and Rome was ready for the revolt. They had stationed a couple of legions up there in Syria, just north of the Galilee, and began sweeping through. And the carnage that they just inflicted upon the land, it's, it's, it's really hard to describe. Uh, the, the last moment of the first Jewish revolt is the mass suicide at Matsada that many of you have heard of. Well, there was another mass suicide that took place at the beginning of the first Jewish revolt at a place called Gamla. And so it's this event that's bookended from 67 to 73 by people who were under such threat that they chose to die rather than to become you know, slaves and tortured by the Roman Empire. Jerusalem was destroyed. The great temple that Herod had built was destroyed. It's, it's a moment that, you know, frankly, you know, the pivotal moment that I think of in my life is September 11th. As, as difficult on my heart as September 11th was, I know that if I could kind of step back and dispassionately look at it, this is a small event compared to the carnage of, say, what Europe experienced in World War II or World War I. You know, where 60 million people die. This is a level of carnage that's hard to even fathom. And you, you get to these places where it's just it's a complete loss of hope. That it just can't go on like this forever. This is what Mark is experiencing. In other words, if you put yourself into Mark's mind, how much worse can it get? Ever had those moments where you look around and you'll see some particularly egregious example of man's inhumanity to man and you, you just go, how, how, how much longer? Can it go on this way? You know, there's this, uh, I, many of you, I, I hope, have either read the book or seen the movie Cold Mountain. And there's that scene where they've tortured the mom to get the location of her sons. And, and when Ruby Twos shows up, she said, you know, God will not stand for this. There's, there's just got to be a reckoning at some point is the way we feel when we see some of these moments. And Mark is seeing these moments everywhere he turns and thinks, this has got to be that moment. How much worse can it get is the idea. The challenge that you have is that Mark is anticipating that Jesus is going to come back at this moment. I mean, he just must come back at this moment, and he doesn't. And so Mark witnesses the destruction of Jerusalem. He witnesses the destruction of the temple. He witnesses the, the diaspora in which so many people are kicked out, and, and the country really never fully recovers from this moment, and yet Jesus doesn't come back. And so if you're Luke, writing in the 80s, you now have to look at these traditions that you've received and said, well, come when the good will come. And, and before that happens, the worst will come. We're just not in the worst yet. We're still in the bad would be the way that Luke would describe it. But now the, the way that the gospel writers write is they don't kind of in um, you know, epistolary style like Paul would just sort of make their argument, they just embed their argument into the narrative. And so how do they embed it? Well, the whole coming with power, that's not happening right now. 
And so Luke takes that out. The, you know, coming with the clouds, well, that's not happening right now, so Luke takes that out. And you can actually see it, and this is, I think, one of the places where you can tell that, you know, maybe it's Mark that's misunderstood and not Luke that's just altering things. Look at that little verse there in Luke 19.11. As they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, the parable that's going to follow that is the parable of the talents. Now, I know y'all are brighter, wiser, and always have been than I, but when I was a little kid, I completely misunderstood the import of the word talent when they were talking about the parable of the talents. This is the one where, you know, the, 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 the master gives ten talents to one and five to the other and one to the other and goes off on a journey and come back, uh, comes back to see how they've done. And so I'm, I'm, I'm hearing talent. So, okay, so... Like this guy, he could play the violin, and he was a good public speaker and a good artist and was athletic as well and, and so forth. This one, yeah, not quite so much. You know, he only got some things. And then this one poor soul only got one talent. I don't know what it was, but okay. Uh, talents are weight measures, much like, if, you know, British money is measured in pounds or, you know, uh, Spanish money in pesos. These are, these are weight measures here. Well, a talent was a weight measure. He's he's not giving them the ability to play the violin. What he's doing is giving them money. Well, think of the logic of this parable. The master's going away. While the master's away, what are you going to do with the things that have been entrusted to you? Inherent in that is the notion the master, Jesus, is going away. And it's going to be a while before he returns. And so you can see that this is not just Luke saying, okay, well, it didn't happen. I'm going to make some stuff up. He's picking out other threads of what Jesus had discussed, what he had taught. And he's emphasizing those threads to say, the master's away. We're here now. And we're going to have to live out the kingdom uh, in, the, in the present moment. So, and you, you can see it inherent in the way that Luke introduces that verse. He tells them this parable. Why? Because they supposed that the kingdom was to appear immediately. In other words, they supposed it incorrectly. They thought the kingdom was coming immediately, but it's going to be a while, is that notion. You can see the way that Luke, it's a Greek word that means return, and sort of all that comes with it. The second coming, I think, is a, another way that we might put it. Uh, Luke believes in the delay of the parousia that the return of Jesus is going to be a little while hence. And so there's a, an entire sort of eschatological discourse that Jesus gives, uh, eschatological, in other words, about the end times. And you find it in Mark chapter 13. I, I've started for y'all with verse 5. Let me read a few verses that introduce it. Didn't have enough room on your handout. but So it says in Mark 13 verse 1, As he came out of the temple, again, thank you Mark, no antecedents ever. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, and you got to feel sympathy for this disciple. Here is a disciple trying to make small talk with Jesus, and it's not going to work. So he says, uh, as he was coming out of the temple, one of his disciples said, Look, teacher. What large stones and, and what large buildings. So he says, you know, he's on a tour with Jesus here. And, and so he's going, wow, look at how, look at these beautiful buildings that are here. And Jesus goes in full messianic wet blanket mode on him. He says, then Jesus said, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another, but all will be thrown down. <laughs> the poor disciple. Okay. 
Peter, you got something? <laughs> you know, and it's, so it, it's not, you know, it's not the nicest moment for this poor disciple that's here. Well, what they do, if you, if you kind of get the, the logic or the lay of the land here, uh, where Jerusalem is, think of that as Sanford's campus. I mean, obviously the new Jerusalem right there, it just all makes sense. Um, and if you cross over Lakeshore, that's called the, the Kidron Valley. You go over to where Homewood High School is and just up the side a little bit of Shades Mountain there, well, that's where the Mount of Olives is. And so they have left Sanford's campus, they have taken their life in their own hands crossing Lakeshore, and which is far worse, I assure you, when you're crossing the road between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives in Israel. Um, and then you, you go up the other side, it says, when he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when this will be. In other words, the, all the, the stones coming down and the buildings falling, and so tell us when this will be, what will be the sign that all these things are to be accomplished. And that's where your verse picks up. Mark 13, verse 5, Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. So here Jesus is warning the disciples about this false message that's going to come. People are going to come, and they're going to claim to be the Messiah, and he says, don't listen to them. If they say this, this is a false message. Look at Luke. He said, beware that you were not led astray. See, it's the same, same text here. For many will come in my name and say, I am he and the time is near. Do not go after them. In Mark, the false message was saying that you're the Messiah. In Luke, the false message is not just saying you're the Messiah, but saying the time is at hand. Saying that the end is near is for Luke a false message that is apt to deceive people. And so he says, don't, don't say that. Don't listen or follow that message. Look at the next uh, paragraph here. It's the beginning of the birth pangs. Notice how Luke has the same text. But he leaves out that line, this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. All right, now you've got to think about this. What are birth pangs? We don't call it this anymore, but you know what it is. It's labor, right? It's contractions. That's what birth pangs are. Well, why would, why would Luke leave that harmless line out right there? Because, well, you could think of pregnancy in that same schema of the bad, worse, good, if you wanted to. Pregnancy for all of the, you know, the, the glow of, the, of new life within, you know, that, that, that the, uh, the bride, my, I have a, a niece, I almost called her a little niece, she's 25, uh, I have a niece who's pregnant right now, and she is just a glow. I mean, she's just got a little baby bump. She's got the cute little overalls that she's wearing and so forth. And she's just aglow and, and so forth. But it's still, it's, it's harder. And, you know, every five minutes, you know, she's headed towards the bathroom, that kind of thing. And ladies, you know, my sympathies have had one one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my whole life, and I, I may have even told you this story here in this context, but um, in a, or in a different context, I have a brother-in-law who runs all of the porta potties in Tuscaloosa. If you've been to an Alabama game and have used one of the porta potties, you know you open the door, you pull out the LSU fan who's collapsed in there, and you go in and so forth. Actually, this really happened. The next morning, he goes in, and there is an LSU fan. I, I apologies to any LSU fans in here. Uh, <laughs> 
minor apologies, um, asleep in the porta potty. And so they have to get the guy out before they can dump it and so forth. Oh, my goodness. Um, but so Matthew, he runs those. The company's called Spanky's, which is the name that they inherited and so forth. But um, he has a trailer that will carry one porta potty. And it's there so that he can, you know, if they just need one or something goes wrong or whatever, he can place this one porta potty. And so Matthew has the porta potty on the Jeep there uh, or on the trailer. He's, he's pulling it in his Jeep. And his wife, Malay, my sister in law, is, is in the Jeep with Matthew. And she is, you know, nine months pregnant. I mean, she is just at the time. And so they pull up at a certain place and she gets out. And this older lady looks at Malay and says, Oh, honey. I remember those days. She is thinking that Malay has to go to the bathroom so often that they're carrying a porta potty with them around for just this purpose. It's just glorious. I mean, it's just fantastic. So, um, you know, so it, while there is that, you know, the joy of new life within, there is also that, you know, it's, it gets harder. And, you know, when Michelle went through her pregnancies, it was in the summertime in Boston, and we didn't have air conditioning, and it was hot. And, you know, there's just only so many fans and ice cubes in front of other fans and things like that you can do. It's, it's tough that it's the bad section. The bad section lasts a long time. Now, what you're looking for is the good. When the little critter comes out and, you know, you whack them on the backside and they cry and you're, you're all happy and everything. But before that happens, you go through the worst period. But the key to the worst period is it's short. Well, it's the most intense, but it's also the briefest of the periods that are there. We, my, my son Samuel, uh, God bless him, he just simply did not want to be born. Um, we, uh, we would go to the doctor and the OBGYN would do whatever, you know, sort of, you know, throw the sticks on the ground and read them and look at the tea leaves and so forth. And, and she would, you know, every time they had told us that his due date was August 30th. And, and yet every time we went in, she would say, ah, boy, he seems awfully big, which was something my wife really was excited about hearing. And maybe, maybe we've gotten, maybe we've gotten the due date wrong. This was a cruel joke that she played on us because mentally we moved his due date up. And so we're thinking August 15th is when it's going to happen. We blow past August 15th, no sign of the child. You know, he's just in there comfortably. We make it to August 30th, which by now for us, this is the end of the 10th month of the pregnancy here. Whales don't gestate this long. You know, it's just, it's going on forever. And we pass the 31st and then into September and it's the 1st and the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th. Seven, eight. I mean, he's at a certain point. The doctor's like, "Well, either we're going to have his kindergarten graduation just here, um, you know, we could put the mortar board, you know, on, on top of your tummy, or we're going to have to do something to get this kid out." And so we go into the hospital on the eighth, and they put her on a pitocin drip, which is supposed to, you know, cause, uh, you know, contractions to start there. And she's on this IV drip the entire day, and nothing happens. Samuel's wedged in there like this. I'm not coming out. You can't make me. And, and it just he won't come. And so finally at 5 o'clock, they were like, that's it. We got, we got nothing. Go home, you know, and, and we'll come back tomorrow. And so, you know, so month 12, you know, of pregnancy is upon us here. And then that night, she had her first contraction. And the kid was born the next day. So the pregnancy lasted 23 months. But once labor started, it, it was just a, a very brief matter of time before he arrived. Mark is witnessing the destruction and says, these are the labor pains. 
that will bring forth the kingdom. Luke is saying, no, we're, 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 just, we're just back in morning sickness. Uh, back here at the first part, it's going to be a while. Look at the third paragraph there. Uh, this is where Mark says, Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing uh, infants in those days. Pray that it may not be in winter, for in those days there will be suffering such as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created. There will be great distress on the earth and wrath against this people. And then look especially at verse 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword, be taken away as captives among all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That word fulfilled, completed, is what he means. In other words, what Luke envisions here is not cut short, but there is an entire era of Gentile domination that is going to intervene before Christ comes back. And so what Luke is really doing is when he's talking about Jerusalem being trampled and the scattering and so forth, he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that's happened and saying this has happened and it's going to be an entire era of Gentiles dominating before the Lord will return. Luke has an idea, if Mark is apocalyptic, then Luke's idea is what we would call the delay of the parousia. Just one last one there. Look at, look at even the way uh, Mark and Luke kind of change the, or the way Luke changes the language of these signs here. In those days after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven. I mean, see, this, this is language of like uh, universal cataclysm. The heavens and the earth and the, the sun, the moon, and the stars actually, you know, falling apart here. The way Luke puts it is there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. That's quite different. You know, a, a sign in the moon could be, a, a, you know, a, 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 an eclipse or something, or the stars, you know, like the Magi see. Mark is envision, envisioning actual cataclysmic collapse where Luke only has just signs in sun, moon, and stars. Now, if Luke's first idea related to uh, eschatology is this notion of the delay of the parousia, it raises an issue that Mark really didn't have to deal with. If, if you're Mark, your expectation is that within our lifetimes, Jesus is coming back. If you're Luke, you don't actually expect that to be the case. So, for example, if you're to read 1 Thessalonians, I know everybody mostly reads it once a day, right? You know, 1 Thessalonians there. Um, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is quite apocalyptic. And so the way that he's talking is that, you know, the, the Lord is going to come as a thief in the night, so be ready. And apparently the, the Christians at Thessalonica, they listened. And some of them quit their jobs. Because after all, Jesus is about to come back. And so, I mean, you can imagine them, they're, you know, dressed in white robes and, you know, singing kumbaya up on hillsides with candles and so forth. And so they're ready for Jesus to come at any moment. And it didn't happen. And so by the time Paul writes 2 Thessalonians... He's telling people, hey, get back to work. You know, what are you doing? You know, a person that doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. That's where that language comes. Why is he having to say that? It was because the people had quit their jobs in response to Paul's teaching. And he's having to go, hold on now. It hadn't happened yet. So, <clears throat> excuse me, we, you need to get busy. Well, this, that technical term, get busy, is... The, uh, the theological notion that Luke will express caused, cause, 
called, excuse me, realized eschatology. Realized is the old-fashioned version of the word for realize, where it doesn't mean to come into knowledge that you didn't possess before, but it means for something to happen or take place. So I could say to one of my students, I hope that you realize all your goals. Now, I wouldn't say that because, you know, that's a version of the word that's kind of passed by a little bit. But I, I hope you realize all your dreams. I don't mean by that that my students will go, I have dreams. I had no idea that I had them, but now I realize I have dreams. No, that's not what I mean. What I mean is that those dreams will be accomplished. I love it when I get a student who doesn't study because I'll ask them to define realized eschatology. And I will invariably get an answer that says, oh, yeah. Like the disciples, they didn't realize there was eschatology, but then Jesus told them, and they said, yeah, there's an eschatology. God bless them. Um, and so the, the, uh, the notion is not that you come to realize something you didn't before, it's that something is accomplished. So, so put those two terms together, they're on the back side of this handout, realized eschatology, in other words, that in some sense, the end times have already taken place. Well, what Luke would mean by that is that while the kingdom has not come in its full flourishing where Jesus is sitting on a throne in Jerusalem and ruling the world, in some sense the kingdom has arrived in a spiritual sense already. That the kingdom is, and look, this is right in Presbyterian's wheelhouse. I mean, this is, this is for y'all. Um, that in some sense the kingdom is already here just in a spiritual sense rather than that full physical sense of it. Uh, look at some of the language that Jesus uses here. Look at Luke 11 there at the top of the page. This is where you know, people are accusing Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebub, and he says, no, I'm doing it by the finger of God. If it's by, in other words, the power of God. If it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Now, you notice, he left out the language of has come when it was the power side where Mark had those lines. But when it's something more spiritual, the kingdom of God has come to you. Or look at Luke 17. Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, and he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed. They're not going to say, oh, look, here it is, or look, there it is. In fact, the kingdom of God is among you. In other words, the kingdom of God is already present in the person of Jesus in a spiritual sense, and it's present among his followers. Luke is the gospel that gives this incredible emphasis to the word today because it's the notion of the present kingdom. You notice in some of these passages that got laid out there for you, to you is born this day in the city of David, a savior. That's from the, the angel's uh, speech there uh, when they're singing to the shepherds. Or in Luke 4, this is when he, he reads the passage out of Isaiah that talks about he's, he's here to give sight to the blind and, and healing and, and to set free the captives and so forth. And he says, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Well, in other words, this is a description of the second coming, except it's very interesting. You look at that Isaiah 61 passage, the first part is all about sight to the blind, release to the captives. The second part is all about like military type stuff. Jesus stops before he gets to the military stuff. He stops at the part about release to the captives and he says, today, this part has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
This is the spiritual outworking of the kingdom. Uh, Luke 19, today salvation has come to this house. This is about Zacchaeus. Or Luke 23, to the thief on the cross, or the, really the rebel on the cross. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke's notion is that while the full flourishing of the kingdom has been delayed, the parousia has been delayed, the kingdom is here in a different sense. And so what we need to do as followers of Christ is to start to live out those kingdom values right now. It is not our job to go and put on the white robes and sit on the hillside waiting for Jesus to return. Our job is to get busy. Now, the illustration that I always use, and I may have even used it in this context, I forget, my part-timers begins to kick in, and I, I try very hard not to repeat the same jokes in the, you know, in the, the same setting over and over again, but there's a, a wonderful scene in the movie The Hunt for Red October. If you know the movie or if you've read the, the Tom Clancy book there that, you know, uh, the, the Russians have invented a first-strike sub. And so now it's not just that the U.S. is going to kill him because they think he's gone crazy, but even the Russians will be coming after him to kill him. And when his officers who are in on the mutiny have, you know, they find out what he's done and they just can't believe it. And, and he's sitting there, he's eating his dinner there at the table. And he's, he says, when Cortez discovered the new world, all right, that's all the Sean Connery you get. He says, he burned their boats. As a result, the men were highly motivated. Now think about what he's saying there. Guys, there's no just hopping back on the boats for the pleasure cruise back to Spain. You're here. You better get to work because you're not going home. This is Luke's notion, albeit not with Connery's accent. The notion is, guys, we're here for the long term, so get busy. Get to work. And that is why Luke's gospel is the one that is so concerned with present circumstances right now. More than any other gospel, Luke is concerned about marginalized people. He's concerned about the poor and the sick and women and Gentiles, all of those people that would be on the outsides. That's Luke. Luke is concerned about dealing with present day problems. In fact, he even blends the language a little bit between spiritual salvation and physical salvation. So if you look, for example, in Luke 18 there, uh, where there's the blind man and Jesus says to him, what is it that you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me see again. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. Well, what he's just done is he, he didn't say your sins are forgiven. What he said was, you know, get your sight back. And yet this is put under the broader rubric of salvation language. The woman with the perpetual hemorrhage, when she touches Jesus, daughter, your faith has made you well. That's the same word, the word sozo there. It's the word to save. Your faith has saved you. Luke 7, he said to the woman, this is the woman who uh, has anointed Jesus' uh, feet with her, uh, the ointment there and wept over him. Uh, and he says, you know, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. There, your faith has saved you. So in other words, whether it's uh, healing from blindness, healing from the hemorrhage, or actual salvation, these are all lumped together with the same language. It's, it's the notion of salvation as something that is bigger than just, if I can talk about people from my tradition, saying the sinner's prayer and going forward to the altar. Is that salvation is something bigger than that. That's part of it, but it's also this wider part of concern for present circumstances. Look at the difference between Matthew and Luke's Beatitudes. In Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
Luke's version is, uh, then he looked up, said to the disciples, blessed are you who are poor. It doesn't say in spirit. For yours is talking about physical hunger and physical poverty. Now, I don't, I don't think these are, are incompatible or irreconcilable ideas. They're, both, they're just different applications of this saying that the Beatitudes are things that are concerned both with spiritual and temporal concerns is the way that we would put it. Luke goes after people largely from our station more than any other gospel writer. People who are wealthy. And we, we should not kid ourselves. In the grand scheme of things, compared to most people who have lived on earth and even most people who are alive on earth right now, we're at the tip of the spear. We have luxuries and things accessible to us that King Solomon never dreamed of. We would be in Luke's target to some degree. You know, uh, Luke not only has beatitudes, he has maledictions. So in, in Matthew, it's blessed, blessed, blessed. Listen to this one from Luke. I don't have it on your sheet, but from Luke chapter 6. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Luke, Luke to use the expression, Luke would stop preaching and go to meddling, I think, with us because he, he talks about how with the kinds of blessings we've received, great responsibilities come in tow. Uh, one of the, the parables that Jesus tells that's so interesting on this one uh, is, I've got it here for you, Luke chapter 16, verse 19. It's the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was being tormented. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip his finger in, the, in water and cool my tongue. For I am in agony in these flames." Notice the Abrahamic response here. Abraham said, child, remember, during your lifetime, you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Now, we can divine the spiritual cause of their differing destinations, it's the, the reflection of the callousness of the rich man who had the poor man outside who longed to eat from the table and had the dogs licking his sores and he did nothing to help it. But we do actually have to divine that because all Abraham says is, you got your good stuff and he didn't. So now the tables are turned. This is a parable and as a parable, what it does is it speaks in terms of hyperbole. The hyperbole is all over this parable. How rich is the rich man? Feasted sumptuously every day. I, mean, I don't even think even Henry VIII did that. I mean, how every day he's feasting sumptuously. And how poor is the poor man? It's not that he wants to sit at the table, just the crumbs. And, and the, you know, just this gratuitous, the dog licking his sores there. This is talking in uh, hyperbolic extremes there. Uh, the, the other example of the hyperbole is it doesn't say, hey, Father Abraham, could I come over there? It's no, just send Lazarus to dip the finger, a tip of his finger in water and touch my tongue for I'm in agony. There's hyperbole all over this. It's a parable, but hyperbole is exaggeration for an effect. 
if Luke is exaggerating in this parable, if Jesus is exaggerating in this parable, it's to get a point across that living out the kingdom means not neglecting the poor man that's sitting right there at the gate. And when, uh, when Jesus is, is in Jericho, he has an encounter with a very famous person in the Bible, Zacchaeus, and that conversation has that same tenor, where Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. It's the last paragraph we have there on the page. Jesus says, I must come to your house today. And when he's there, Zacchaeus stands up and he says, if I have, uh, you can see it in the underlying portion, uh, half of my possessions, Lord, I'll give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. And then look at Jesus' concluding line. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, for he too is a son of Abraham. You see what he's saying is, as Zacchaeus, when you act that way, you live out what it means to be this son of Abraham. Think, think about child of Abraham. What does that mean? I mean, sure, okay, he's Jewish. But everybody Jesus is talking to is Jewish. You go back to the very first paragraph that involves Abraham, and it's through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Zacchaeus, what has he just done? He has finally stepped into the Abrahamic role that says, I'm a child of God for a purpose. And that purpose is to bless other people. This is Luke's gospel. Luke says, Jesus is going to come back, but it's going to be a while. And since it's going to be a while, get busy, get to work, live out the kingdom, and become children of Abraham by blessing those around us as God has blessed us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the gospel of Luke. Lord, um, I, I confess Luke's gospel pokes and prods me in places that I find uncomfortable sometimes. I pray that you will allow that poking and prodding to result in more mercy and kindness to the people who are vulnerable to me, around me, and around all of us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.